So let me say, first, I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, and I'm very appreciative, especially of the lovely hospitality that I've had since coming to Washington just yesterday. Uh, Ellen Post and Barry Gay uh, were kind enough to put me up in their house. And I can hardly recommend it if you get out of your house you need a place to go. <laughs> a very lovely place to be. And this is my first visit here as executive director for the American Ethical Union. And this is one of 20 visits like this that I'm doing this year, this 12-month period between June and June. Uh, and I say that because uh, there's a certain thing that I'm doing at each one of these visits that is a little bit different than what people typically expect. And that is that I take pictures. So I'm glad to see that you're all looking really good. I, I encourage you to smile and, uh, and to, you know, I mean, look happy. Okay. Well, uh, this, by the way, will become part of a travelogue, and uh, our website, hopefully one that's in a little bit better shape, will have uh, these visits with a blog that kind of talks about the visit a bit and has links to the photographs, all right? So you can actually see yourself, hopefully, in the near future. I hope you took a picture with the kids, too. I didn't get the kids. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, that's so terrible. I'll have to rectify that. You know what, I may ask you to send me pictures with the kids. Would that be good? Would somebody be willing to do that? Do we have a volunteer? Oh, come on, guys. Somebody's got to step up. You're going to get the pictures. Thank you very much. All right. There we go. All right. Uh, Bartwarden at gmail.com. Okay. There we go. So uh, enough time wasting here. All right. Smile, everybody. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh oh, light's going to be a problem on this one, guys. Sorry. Yeah, there are adjustments I can actually make to the camera, but I don't know how to do them on the fly when I'm also trying to think about like saying a few things to you. So, you know what? There are so many pictures of me that I am really, uh, really happy to have fewer of them. But anyone who wants to, yeah, I mean, it is uh, fair game. <laughs> well, I'm going to take, you get to take that. Okay, so ethical culture was designed to be a remedy for society's ills. From its earliest days, the ethical society sought to confront and combat what were seen as obstacles to the realization of the worth and dignity of all people. And though the aim of the ethical society was broad and cultural, I mean, it's, ethical culture has to do with an entire society experiencing change, the mechanism for that is intensely personal. The one thing that you will hear from every ethical society is the call to elicit the best of others and thereby in oneself. Bring out the best of others, however you like choose to say those words. That is the mechanism for ethical culture to happen. It's in our interactions with people that really instill a sense of hope and change. And we've seen this in our lives already. Right? I doubt very much that you would be here today if there were not people in your lives that made a difference to who you are, what you care about, how you see yourself. 
I mean, think about the important moments in your life where maybe your life took a turn one way or another. My guess is there's somebody that was there then, somebody that you associate with that turning, with that change. Maybe it was a teacher that noticed something that nobody else had. Maybe it was a parent or another relative. Maybe it was a close friend. Maybe it was an entire stranger, somebody you've never seen before, but somehow they got to you. And that made a difference. Our jobs is to be that person for others. To be the one who connects with people in such a way that they experience a, a change, a growth, an expansion. That's what we are here for, is to find some way to help people's good stuff come out, be active in the world around us. Getting there, however, can be a little bit of a tough road. I don't know if you experience this or not, but I find that some days I do better than others on the eliciting the best end. Um, and part of that may have to do with the amount of things that we're trying to juggle at one time, or who knows what. But let's take a little time right now to at least focus our attention in on some of those things that you think are really important to you. What are your top three? Think about this. Wonder, what is it that's really important to you? What are the things that are really important for you to accomplish in your life? Maybe these are things that you're already working on, you know, so you're in the middle of a process and things are going and you're, you're just really looking for the energy to keep it moving. Maybe these are things that you've thought about and never gotten to. Sometimes it's hard to get started. Maybe these are things that you started and it didn't go in the way that you were hoping. And so there's a level of frustration and, and aching over this. But there are important things in your life important things that you have yet to do. And finding a way to help them stay at the center of our choices and the center of our activity is a supreme challenge and one that really draws out the need for us to connect with each other. These aren't the kind of things that people can generally do by themselves. We need each other. So Felix Adler was somebody who was really thinking about these things a while back. He was the founder of the First Ethical Society in New York City in 1876 uh, and really became the leader of ethical culture for uh, the rest of his life. And in the inaugural address, he had a passage in there that I'm going to share with you because I think it's, it has something to say to us today. This was 1876. There is a great and crying evil in modern society. It is want of purpose. It is that narrowness of vision which shuts out the wider vistas of the soul. It is the absence of those sublime emotions which, whenever they arise, do not fail to exalt and consecrate existence. Do you talk like that, by the way? <laughs> do you hear much like that? Yeah. Uh, 
It's, it's kind of different language, isn't it? it? It stands out. And yet, it speaks to us, I think, if we listen carefully. Because some of the things that he was pointing to as issues probably are still issues for us today. Right? How many of us struggle with our sense of purpose and with our energy towards living life purposefully? How many of us struggle to get a broader vision, wider vista of the soul, to feel really connected and and really attached to the world that we're living in? And what about those sublime emotions and consecrating existence? How are we doing with that? Well, Adler was really very concerned with materialism uh, back in 1876. And let's remember that that the time when he said this was in the burgeoning industrial age. And at that time, there was a growing sense of hope that through engineering, hard work, building and construction and corporations, there would be the ability to satisfy the basic needs of everyone. That there would be the capacity to have enough food, enough shelter, enough transportation for people to have a reasonably good life. And this was a real change from where things had been. Adler was concerned, though. Concerned that people would settle for just that. That there would be a satisfaction with just having enough. And then a turning away from what's next. And an absence of really connecting with what might be deeper and more important about experience than just getting our basic needs met in the sense of our food and our shelter and our friendliness. So he was concerned about that. He was concerned about the the philosophical aspects of that and the, the practical aspects of that. Well, fast forward 130 some odd years to my mind, we've got the material stuff pretty well knocked out of the park. If you look at what is available to us now in terms of material goods, it's completely more than we need. Right? We're, we're living in a time of extreme abundance in that regard. In fact, now the, the problem isn't so much want. The problem is what to do with all of our stuff. Now, I know uh, when I've said this, people have taken me to task, say, you know, there's plenty of poverty, even in this country. But uh, there's about a billion people living on less than a dollar a day on this planet. They don't live in this country. Um, We have enough. And for us, it's really more about how we choose to deal with it than whether it's there to be dealt with. So materialism remains a problem for us, not in the sense of we don't have enough, but now there's so much, it's hard to not be distracted by all that's there. It's hard to not feel that our lives are burdened by by the abundance. The other thing, and I don't know that Adler was so worried about this, but I think it's something that is worth worrying about, and that is fearfulness. We live in a time right now that is probably the least violent time this world has ever known. Anyone feel that it's like that? Yeah? 
Not many of us, right? Why is that? Why is it in a time when, if you look at the statistics, we're actually much less violent than we ever were, people are feeling afraid. People are locking their homes up. People are looking around behind them that someone is going to attack them. The chances of any one of us being attacked is really pretty small. There's plenty of other things that are much more likely to happen to us that we really probably don't worry about so much. Right? But that fear stays with us. That fear becomes something that makes it harder for us to choose to do the kind of things that would be working those grand plans that we'd like to accomplish. Right? We hold ourselves back. We get ourselves sidetracked. It's difficult. Now, one of the reasons I think for that is that we are just built in such a way that things that we are afraid of stand out really powerfully compared to things that we're not afraid of. Um, and part of the reason for that, I guess, is that we have evolved psychologically at a much slower rate than our environment has evolved through our uh, administrations. So a couple hundred thousand years ago, if you were out in the uh, wilderness and you heard a rustling but decided it was just the wind when it was really a tiger, that was the kind of mistake that would cause you problems, right? <laughs> Probably significant ones. Um, these days, there aren't many tigers, right? The things that we really would need to be afraid of, like global warming, for instance, aren't the kind of thing that jump out at you from around a tree. Um, these are the kind of things that are just there almost in the background, and it's hard to get that frantic sense. Was anyone here frantic about global warming? Okay, yeah, you, know, you guys are really ahead of the game here. I really, I, I, I'm so pleased to see this. Uh, it's harder to really instill that level of, of real fright. Right? But fear is one of those things that tends to shut us down. Right? It does, isn't something that really helps us really function so, so well unless we're functioning in a way to run away, uh, fight down an attacker, or uh, just try to avoid trouble. Right? It's not the kind of thing that really helps us generally act in such a positive kind of way. Um, there's a, uh, a psychiatrist, um, and his name is Daniel Siegel, wrote a book called Mindsight. Anyone familiar with Mindsight, the book? Right. It's an interesting book. His idea is that people really can not only live life, but they can kind of stand outside of the way they live just enough that they can observe what's going on, which is kind of a remarkable thing to be able to do. And so if you look at the mind as a, um, an entity, I guess, for lack of a better word, that is monitoring and, um, uh, monitoring and uh, uh, kind of organizing our experience, um, it's possible to also note that you can step outside of that a little bit and see some of that monitoring and organizing going on. Um, he recommends uh, mindfulness meditation as a way that you can do this, right? Where you get uh, very quiet and you get thoughtful and you just notice the things going on without making judgments about them. Just quietly notice. His point is that if you do this successfully, you can actually make anatomical changes to how your brain is working. And so those changes can actually persist and be helpful for you over the long haul. So he says, imagine you have kind of your, your consciousness, you can almost imagine it like a river that's flowing. 
right? And it's flowing along and it's flowing along. And this river has banks. And on one bank, you hold the river on this side, and another bank holds the river on this side. And as long as your experience is such that it's kind of flowing along, chances are the banks will contain the energy pretty well, so you'll feel pretty comfortable and you'll feel like you're on top of things and that sort of thing. But every so often, our experience might start to be a little bit more than we're ready to handle with our regular flow. And so then the consciousness starts bumping up against the banks. And he says people typically have two banks, one of which they tend to use more than the other. So one bank would be the bank of rigidity. So when it gets to be too much, your idea is you you fall and say, that's it. I'm putting my foot down now. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I I can't take this anymore. That's it. Right? You'll notice that. So if you start having those kind of statements, chances are your bank of rigidity is being activated. On the other side is the bank of chaos. I, I like chaos. I, I, the, the chaos thing is where, I, where my home is. And there, there's, what happens here is you get so much and you just kind of dissolve, you know? And you can't even tell who you are or what you're about anymore. You know, who knows? I'm sleepy now. I think I'm going to go rest. Right? Um, when we're overwhelmed, those kind of things tend to happen a lot. So Siegel's point is if we can help expand that river of consciousness a little bit more... Um, we might be able to have a fuller, richer, more successful way of life. Ethical culture is kind of built in that direction too, isn't it? Aren't what we're saying is what we would like to see is that people develop the ethical personality that helps them stay connected with others and not get overwhelmed by that connection. Stay connected with others in a way that continues to elicit the best qualities of other people. It is hard to do, though, isn't it? Now, we, did we have an election fairly recently? Uh, November. November. Who, who voted? All right. All right. Um, I'm not going to ask this question, but my guess is many of you voted for the person who won. And congratulations on that. Uh, I also imagine that you know people that you have come across who voted for someone else. And at some point, maybe you had a conversation or two with people who voted for someone else. Anyone here have a conversation with someone who voted for someone else? How did that go? (laughs) Was it fun? Did you enjoy it beforehand? Did you find yourself feeling an increased sense of respect for that other person? A sense of closeness and comfort and intimacy. He didn't? No. It's hard, isn't it? When people have a different point of view, it's much harder to have our river of consciousness flowing, right? Because we're protecting, we're watching out, we're nervous. Now, one of the reasons for this, they say, um, is that we have different ways of functioning in our minds, right? Uh, Daniel Hanneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Any fans? Ah, good. Okay, this, this is good. Daniel Hanneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, says there are two basic structures in the way our minds work. Right? One is a very fast structure. He calls, uh, what is it, one and two. I'm kind of forgetting how he describes it. But anyway, there's, there's system, system one and system two. System one is very fast. And what's really nice about system one is it's got a lot of things ready to go. Right? So if you're driving, for instance, to some place that's really familiar to you, system one is a big help. 
right? Because you don't have to be thinking all the way, okay, now I'm going to drive 400 feet and then I'm going to move and then... No, you just drive, right? And you can let your mind do a few other things and really enjoy it. Every so often, though, we'll come upon a situation where that breaks down a bit and we need to bring in the big guns of uh, System 2. System 2 is where we use logic and where we really put time and attention into focusing attention. System 2 we use a lot if we have two things that we're trying to sort between. And one of the things they found is you can tell which system is in play by uh, looking at people's pupils. Because it actually takes a lot more energy to use System 2 than System 1. So when people are using System 2, you can see the change in their eyes. And you'll find if you connect them to a device that shows how much sugar is being used up, that their brain is working overtime. So if you've ever felt really tired after a test where you've had to do a lot of thinking, there's a very good reason for that. You have burned a lot of energy using System 2. If you use System 1 and you finish the test quickly, you may not have performed as well, but you probably saved a bit of energy. Now, why do I say this? Well, because we function in System 1 and System 2 all the time. And one of the places that is very much caught up in System 1 is morality. Think about it. You generally know immediately when something's wrong. Right? You don't have to think about it. You don't have to spend some time trying to figure out, is this wrong? Right? You don't. You see it immediately. And if you do use System 2 at all, generally it's probably to try to figure out, why did I say that? You know, why, why do I think that? Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a researcher who's been looking at this. And um, he calls this your intuitive processing. And he says the thing that happens is we have all these things ready to go, and it pops up, and then we need to deal with it. And so in his book, The Righteous Mind, he answers the question, why doesn't the other side listen to reason? <laughs> and this is about politics, can you tell? So he replies, we were never designed to listen to reason. When you ask people moral questions, time their responses, and scan their brains, their answers and brain activation patterns indicate that they reach conclusions quickly and produce reasons later only to justify what they've decided. The problem isn't that people don't reason. They do reason. But their arguments aim to support their conclusions, not yours. Reasons doesn't work like a judge or teacher impartially weighing evidence or guiding us to wisdom. It works more like a lawyer or a press secretary justifying our acts and judgments to others. If you want to rely on reason to help you through this, it may not be the most successful way to go. All right? Because oftentimes we can just bring reason to help us boost our defenses and uh, get into a big fight. So let me tell you about a personal experience. Um, I uh, have a brother. And the one thing that my brother and I have in common is that we emerged from the same womb. <laughs> We've been getting along very well because he lives about 700 miles away and he doesn't travel much. However, when we have gotten together, it has not generally been the most pleasant of experiences for either of us. 
However, last summer, we determined that this would be a good time in our lives. My father is still alive. He's 86, and uh, his two daughters were still around with their husbands, and my two kids, and my son's girlfriend, and all. We have a vacation place, and it was determined that we would all spend a week together vacationing at the beach. Um, the thing is, it's really nice to do this, isn't it? You know, we, we had us all three dogs, and uh, the weather was gorgeous, and we had these nice things to do, paddling around in the water, and you know, all that great stuff. But there's this elephant in the room, isn't there, when you have these things going? And uh, we're inclined, to, around 5 o'clock is cocktail hour. Cocktail hour? People know cocktail hour? <laughs> great snacks, nice stiff drinks. And I can tell you if you want to get into a fight, bring the alcohol. Alcohol really brings something to the table that's hard to get otherwise. It removes uh, the the controls on your sense of judgment. So you're able to say stupid things and then stick to them no matter what. Long past their utility. Really works. Really works. So it's about 5.35. Snacks were great, drinks were good, and this is August, last August, and my brother says, you know, all those Democrats, uh, now I know he said something else after that, but it all went dark. Now the thing is, I asked for this vacation. I really want to have this time with my family. So here it is. I know what I want. And it's about to be ruined. Ruination is right there before me. So let me tell you about nonviolent communication. (laughs) Take a little segue here. Um, We had lay leadership summer school this past uh, summer. Happy to say some lovely people from West uh, joined us uh, yet again. Actually, four. It was a record from West this year. And one of the things that we do at uh, Leadership Summer School is study compassionate communication, which comes out of the nonviolent communication world that Marshall Rosenberg has uh, put together. And our, uh, our trainer, Diane Kirshner, is excellent. And she really puts us through our paces, trying to develop the ways that you can communicate with people so that when you are faced with someone who is maybe having a different idea about life or having a different kind of uh, intense experience than what you're ready for, you can manage to get through that without getting into fights and, and big difficulties. Right? It's a technology, if you will, that helps people figure out how to listen and how to interact in ways that help keep defenses low and help keep connection, on a positive sense, high. Because right? the truth is, when we feel connected with people, that gives us some headroom. Right? The people that we like, we're much more inclined to be able to give them the benefit of the doubt. So connection is really important. And also, managing to keep our defenses down is really important, because when our defenses are up, we forget that we like people, right? Uh, Because that doesn't matter so much anymore, you know, uh, when our defenses are up. So Diane uh, was really doing some great things, really helping us understand how to listen without judging, 
How do I help identify the feelings that were kind of uncomfortable in feeling and to say something about them that was uh, easier to hear from the point of view of somebody who was upset? And how to really engage a conversation so that you can really connect with the, the needs that a person has in a way that you both feel good with each other. Really nice. And she gave us a gift. And her gift was a tent card. Tent cards, you know, they, they fold out like this. And it's a two-sided card. And on the one side, and this is a card, by the way, if you're sitting at a table with someone, you can put it down between you. One side says, tell me more. Tell me more. I'm ready to listen. The other side, the side that faces you, says, it's not about me. Because <laughs> that's really what helps us break down, right? We start personalizing all this stuff. Hard not to. Now, I didn't have my tent card with me at 535 on that particular night. <laughs> However, I was just back from summer school, so I had the fortification of recent training. And so my brother says, all those Democrats. And I think to myself, I don't want to fight. I really don't. So I say, I don't trust the word all. And I, he didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> and so conversation carried on a little bit later. He says something like, you know, every one of those guys, and I say something to the effect of, I don't trust the word everyone. And after a little while, the diatribe end of it started to fade away. Because we didn't really engage. We were a little bit like this, I guess. But enough like this that we're able to meet. Where did we meet? Well, it turns out both of us were really, really wanting this to be a vacation where we would come out feeling pleased that we were together and that we were spending our time as a family. The second concern that we had, which you had to get to a little bit later, was that we're both pretty unhappy with the polarization of things and the refusal to work together on the part of government. We could unite on that and even have some conversation about that. But the important thing was successfully coming out of a dangerous situation with our regard for each other intact. Um, I'm happy to say uh, he called, I don't know, about two weeks ago, and in the middle of our conversation, again, referred back to our time at the beach and how wonderful that was and how special it was for us, him and me, as well as for us as a family. A very helpful thing. When we find ways to stay connected with people that we're inclined to fight with, we really have a chance of making a permanent difference in how things go forward. Your good deeds can't really be undone. They stick. They stay. And when we find ways to reach those folks that we're not so inclined to reach or that we're nervous about reaching or that we're scared to talk to, when we can find ways to do that successfully, we can make a profound difference in our lives and in the lives of people around us. 
Now, it's one thing to have this as an idea. It's another to try it on and do it once. And it's another thing still to be able to do it over and over again. A function of ethical societies is to help us develop the skills and to support each other in exercising them. It doesn't always work. So I would like to talk a little bit about Randy Pausch. You know the word name Randy Pausch? He, wrote the, he did the last lecture, which I heartily recommend viewing on YouTube. The last lecture was a series that was, uh, people were asked to develop a lecture based on, if this was your last lecture, what would you say? Well, Randy Pausch learned that he had a terminal form of cancer. So his last lecture is his last lecture. And it's really quite something to see, very powerful. He's an interesting person in many ways. And uh, one of the things he says in the middle of this, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. (laughs) And experience is often the most valuable thing you have to offer. Ethical culture is about learning from our experience. Learning from the things that go well, learning from the things that don't. He also has a really helpful thing, I think, about brick walls. Because there are times when things we're going for, we just feel really stymied. We come up against the wall, and we don't know what's next. He says, brick walls are there for a reason. The brick walls are not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. Because the brick walls are there to stop the people who don't want it badly enough. They're there to stop the other people. We have so many opportunities in our lives to be connecting with people, to be reaching people in a really helpful way. And when we do that, each time, we are moving the ball of ethical culture a little bit up the field. We are helping everyone when we find ways to connect and to stay connected with people in ways that they can hear and relate and utilize. So I'd like to close with a very brief quote from Rumi who uh, has this bit of aspiration. So hoping to get there. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there.